0: So, so let's do it. We're, we're back in our series looking at stories Jesus told, looking specifically at parables of the kingdom. And this is by far today one of Jesus' not, not only one of his most well-known parables, but one of his most well-known famous teachings, period. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're familiar with that term because it actually is something that floats around in pop culture as well or we know it well, kind of floats around. It's used as really just a label of like random acts of kindness. You know, you're a good Samaritan. If you're a good person, you did something selfless, then you kind of get a badge of you're a good Samaritan. Um, Something sacrificial, something generous, that's what you are. We have charities, entire charities named, you know, the Samaritan's Purse or Samaritan's Food Bank. Uh, We even have laws, good Samaritan laws that protect people if something bad happens when they're trying to help a civilian. Um, But... When we get into this parable and we look at it, if we only stopped there and we took this as a way of saying, now go and be a good person. Now go and try really hard. We would actually miss a lot of what Jesus is doing in this. And I think ultimately what we will miss if we just do that is we will actually miss the underlying heart gospel motivation behind doing good. And so being a good Samaritan, it, it's, although it's not just about being a good person, it's not, it's not less than that, but it's definitely more than that. And so the point of the parable today is not, okay, let's go and be a good person. That's not what this is going to do. That's not what Jesus was doing with it. So let's jump in and look at what he was doing. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold... Anytime a text starts with that, it's kind of like, and look, a new event is happening. Something is happening. A lawyer, a legal expert, a Pharisee, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, rabbi, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And that's used interchangeably as kingdom of God. What can I do to get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you see it? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. You're right. Do that, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, the legal expert, the Pharisee, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Pause there. Now, this conversation happens quite often, where a Pharisee, a scribe, a a legal expert in biblical law, Jewish law, will stand up and try to have a conversation in the open forum, in the public domain with Jesus. And here what what we're actually seeing is that he's not actually trying to have an open conversation and dialogue about the law. He's not trying to really genuinely understand the implications of the law on himself. He's not trying to say, how do I actually go and do this? He's trying to trap Jesus in this theological test. And they do it all the time. But here's what's interesting. It's a great question. He starts with the question of what... What can I do to experience forever life? Like, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To actually experience the kingdom of God? Now here's what's interesting is this question is asked of Jesus often. Nicodemus asks the same question. The rich young ruler asks the same question. So often Jesus is confronted with this question. Why? Well, because Jesus comes with a message about the now and the forever kingdom of God. And he's saying that there's something that he is going to do in the present that ultimately is going to give us life to the fullest forever. And this question is a very important question because every single person asks some version of this question. All of us, whether we identify as religious or not religious, this is a question that hangs just kind of in our psyche, it just hangs in the background of our heart so that day in and day out as we go, even if we live a really good life and we go and we crush all of our personal goals and we meet our financial goals and we meet all of our relational goals and our kids don't end up being a train wreck entirely, that, that there's something about us that when our head hits the pillow at night and we're left alone with our thoughts, there's something that hangs there and we just kind of go, but is this it? is this it? Like is this? Is this is this what life is about? And this is really interesting because this is a religious person. This is an expert in Jewish law coming to Jesus and asking this question. And I think there's something genuine. There's something redeemable about him asking this question because this is a really important question. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God put eternity into our hearts so that we would seek him. So for us as followers of Jesus, if you are, this is a really important thing to understand that when we look at our our neighborhood, when we look at our workplaces, when we look at people that we cross paths with day in and day out, week in and week out, they are asking this question, whether they think so or not. Their head is hitting the pillow and they're asking, is this it? Is this what life is about? I just crush it, I kill it for 75 years or whatever and then I just go into nothing. Is this it? Is this what life is about? Is this what life is doing? Is this where it's going? And Jesus has a really important answer into this, but he's not asking genuinely, right? He's not actually asking himself. He's coming to justify himself in the crowd. So he's asking this question so that Jesus may answer and say to him, you're right. You, you killed it. You did it. And that's literally what Jesus says. What, what, what do you think the answer is? Well, love God, love others. You're right. Go and do it. And then there's this, 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 this sense of like, okay, but he didn't get Jesus, right? Like, he didn't really get it. He wanted Jesus to make him look really awesome in the crowds. And then Jesus, like, does it. He's just like, awesome, good for you, you're amazing, go do it, right? But he's not satisfied. So he's like, no. but but who is my neighbor, right? So now he tries to kind of, like, get philosophical with Jesus. And this is what's really interesting because religion always looks for self-justification, And whether it's religion in religious beliefs or it's non-religion in whatever pursuit that will make me happy, we're all looking just to justify ourselves, And so we're all asking the question of, is this it? And we're all asking the question of, what is enough? What is enough to justify me? What is enough to validate who I am? And that's this question. That's exactly what's happening here. And what this, this religious person is trying to see, is okay, what can I do? Notice the question. What can I do to inherit eternal life? He's still looking at his behaviors, his lifestyle, what he can do to nail this, to gain favor with God's, God and ultimately others. That's what, he's getting, that's what he's going after. How can I pray? How can I give? How can I act this way, that way, so that God is obligated to throw me a bone, right? God is obligated to just be like, you are so great, you're amazing. Self-justification. And Jesus' answer, just like he's been asked this question before, Jesus' answer is the same answer he gives in other places. In Matthew 22, when he's asked what is the greatest commandment in the law, he gives the same answer. In Galatians 5.14, Paul gives the same answer. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. What's really interesting about the lawyer's answer to this is that he, he, he nails it, he gets it right, but that he takes the Ten Commandments and he summarizes them in those two statements. And he takes Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he takes Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And he takes it all, and that's exactly what the Ten Commandments hang on. The first four commandments, love God, love God, love God, no one else, nothing else, love God. The last six Ten Commandments, here's what that looks like in loving neighbor. Here's what that looks like in treating others. There's a vertical plane, and then there's the horizontal plane. And he nails the answer. He gets it right. And that's that's what the lawyer wanted. He just wanted to be seen as right. He wanted to get the right answer. And honestly, for us, in this day and age, sometimes we're just looking to be right. We don't actually care to do the right thing. We don't actually care to be changed by what is right. We just wanna be right. We wanna look right. We wanna be validated by other people because we're more right than they are. So we get into debates and dialogues and controversies and conspiracies, and we get into all sorts of things because we just wanna be right. And that's exactly what's happening here. And ultimately, it comes down to self-justification. So he brings Deuteronomy 6, he brings Leviticus 19, and he presents it there. And what's really interesting, and I I love this about this text, is that Leviticus 19 is a a beautiful text. It's the part that you skip in your Bible, because it's all like the purity stuff, right, in your annual readings. You're like, what? What kind of skin? Why? Right? Okay, and you, you skip those sections. But in Leviticus 19, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then it goes on to describe all sorts of scenarios where love of neighbor shows up. It goes into calling us to live below our means so that we actually have a margin to be generous with. It goes into how to actually treat our property and what, what we have. It goes into how to be honest with money and relationships. How to be men and women of our word, like actually be honest. How to pay our bills on time. Like, like Leviticus 19, it's like pay your bills on time. That's love of neighbor, right? Like there's all these practical things that happen. And what's really, really interesting is that this lawyer knows that. He knows Leviticus 19. He has it memorized. And so what's really interesting is that he's not looking for Jesus to describe to him what it means for him to go love his neighbor. That's not what he's asking. It's not a genuine question. He's not trying to learn in this moment because he already knows it. But he stops short of that because he's trying to trap Jesus. Because what he knows and what you and I know is that true love of others, true love for neighbor comes from and stems from true love for God. It doesn't justify us before God, but it does prove that we know the love of God and we've been justified by God. And this lawyer knows that. The crowd knows that. But look where he jumps to. He skips the love of God and he asks about his neighbor. Do you guys catch that? He doesn't go, okay, tell me more. How can I, how can I like just grow in my, my love and my affections for God, Jesus? That's what I want to know. He immediately jumps from, who is my neighbor? I don't really need to talk about loving God because I already do that really well. I'm nailing that, right? But who is my neighbor? Now, he doesn't ask how to love his neighbor because he already knows, because it's already spelled out. And that's why Jesus doesn't play this game with him, I think. He tries to look for an out, and he tries to play semantics with Jesus so that he can create a category of people that he's not obligated to love. And the Pharisees were notorious with this. They had whole prayers that they would pray in the temple, of, Lord, thank God that I am not a Gentile. Therefore, and then they'd pray and ask God for stuff. And God's like, what? Like the Pharisees were notorious for this. Non-Jews, Gentiles, slaves, and sinners. No, 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 they're not my neighbors. They're not us. That's them. Those are the other. Those are, those are them. We're not obligated to love them. There was a popular saying, you know, you'll remember this. What Jesus says to them, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and what? hate your enemy. That was a common saying in the first century. That's not what scripture teaches. And he says, no, no, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Right, so he's taking that and he's really, he's putting words to something that was generally assumed, that was generally believed because we get to decide who's in and out. We get to sit in the place of self-justification and decide who is worthy of my time, who is worthy of my generosity, who gets more of my stuff because it's mine. And that's exactly what Jesus is pushing him into. It's exactly what he's pushing our heart into in the the parable of the the Good Samaritan. So if we only kind of stay on the surface level and look at this as a motivation, and say, I'm going to leave here today motivated to go and do good stuff, we miss the real message of this. And that is, this starts in our heart. That you and I can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And we often do. And this guy was trying to figure out how to continue to do all the right things with very, very wrong motivations in his heart. And ultimately hate. Ultimately a lack of love. Ultimately an othering, a a making the categories of who deserves, who is worthy of mercy, who is worthy of justice, who is worthy of care, who is worthy of love. He gets to decide that. And Jesus doesn't play. In fact, Jesus doesn't even answer him. He answers him with a story. And that's something we've been looking at across this series, right? Is that Jesus often won't even play into this, this little game of theological armchair-ism, sitting in there, like, oh, whoa, let's, stroke our, let's twist our mustaches and pull our beards and talk about things. Jesus doesn't play. He's not playing with that because he doesn't want, that's not why he's here, right? That's not why he's there. And he answers them with a story, a very, very familiar story. Watch this. Verse 30. Jesus replied, so a man was going down. Like, I just love, I love it. I love rhetorically. I just, I just, I can't get over the parables. Because this man's like, but who is my neighbor? Right, stroking his beard. And Jesus just like, so there's a guy walking down a road. Right, I, I love it. Like, you gotta just, you gotta catch the irony and the comedy in it. Because it really is comedic, okay. There is a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Pause. Everyone in the crowd would have gone, yeah, that's what happens on that road. It's a real road, okay? Jerusalem to Jericho, it's a real road. About 30 kilometers long, there was a steep drop between Jerusalem and Jericho. It was the highest point. Jericho was actually below sea level, right? And there was this windy, very famous road. It was called the Way of Blood because literally there was caves and holes and boulders. And it was like this, I mean, like Lion King-esque kind of like caves and all sorts of things where robbers would sit and wait for people to make the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem and Jerusalem to Jericho. They'd jump them, steal their stuff and leave them half dead. That literally was a thing. So like if, if Jesus started a story and been like, so it was downtown Brooklyn at midnight and there were some drunks in the alley and they beat somebody up and took their wallet. You're like, well, yeah, like that's what happens in an alley in Brooklyn at midnight. You know what I mean? Like, so there's something so familiar about this. So everyone right away is just kind of like, Really? Like, this guy just asked you how to, like, get... Like, they're waiting. They're like, Jesus, get into the law debate. Argue about the law with him. Show him that he doesn't understand God's law. Like, get him, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, so let me tell you a story. And then it continues, and it gets weirder. So it's already familiar, but then it gets weird. Now, by chance, when Jesus says by chance, he's being very facetious. He doesn't mean that there's by chance. He's like, this is on purpose, right? Right? By chance, a priest was going down that road. You're like, okay, awesome. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And you're like, whoa, whoa hold on. No, 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 Jesus, that's not, that's not what a priest would do, though. You're like, no, like, right away, you're like, but a, but a priest was walking by. You're like, phew, oh, thank God. Thank God, by chance, that a priest was there. Because surely help has arrived. It's a priest. Like, the priest is coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, Which often, that was a commute that they would make. They would do two week, like, work rotations. Priests and Levites and temple workers would go. They'd work in Jerusalem, and many of them would live in Jericho. And this was the most direct path to get home. And they would go home, and they'd have their food and their wine and their grain and their donkey, which was their paycheck, right? And they would go from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So right here in your story, you're like, yeah, priests travel there. That's what they do. Thank God a priest is there. He knows God's law. He's going to do it. He's going to take care of this man. He knows Leviticus 19, that he's supposed to love his neighbor as himself. Actually, he teaches it. He knows Micah 6.8, that the Lord requires us to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with our God. He knows it. He teaches it. He knows Proverbs 21.13, that whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, that God will shut his ear to our cry. He knows it because he teaches it. Thank God help has arrived. And the priest sees him. And crosses to the other side. But then a Levite comes. It's like, okay, whew, a Levite. A Levite will help. Thankfully, the assistant to the priest, he must help. Then a Levite comes. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Both a priest and a Levite see the man in need, the half beaten, left for dead, broken, wounded man. And they pass by on the other side. Now this is shocking. Because no one in the audience would think that the hero of the story would not be the hero. These were ceremonially clean Jews that worked in the temple. If there's anyone that knows about the love of God and loving neighbor, it is these chaps. And they do nothing. They feel nothing. The only thing they do... Is go out of their way to avoid needing to do something. This is unheard of. It's shocking. For a ceremonially clean Jew, you couldn't get within six feet of a dead body. Why? Because if you were unclean, you had to go back up to Jerusalem and get get clean again. And if they're traveling with their paycheck for those two weeks, they're traveling home with their food for their family. If their food gets deemed unclean, they, that's spoiled. They can't even feed their family. So there are real, justifiable reasons why the priest and Levite may not want to help this man. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Because we need to be careful, church. If your theology gives you reasons to pull away and move away from people in need, you have the wrong theology. If your religious beliefs lead you to not care for people in need, you have the wrong beliefs. And that's what's happening here. They have all the right beliefs. All the things that they would check the boxes and they do none of it. And Jesus is just calling out the crowds here. He's calling them out so strongly on this because this lawyer is this person. But not just this lawyer. This is you and I. So it's you and me, constantly passing by needs, constantly choosing self-preservation, constantly saying, but what about my family? But what about my food? But what about my house? But what about me? And Jesus is calling this out. So the priest passed by, the Levite passed by, and then what you're expecting in this story, and this is interesting culturally, you're expecting a lay person. You're expecting a Jewish lay person. Because the social hierarchy of the day was priest, Levite, Jewish. Okay? So that was it. That was just like socioeconomically, culturally, ethnically. That was how it went down. It was a three-tiered kind of caste system. And so right now, as a a story, you're already shocked listening in the audience. And you're like, okay, wow. Wow, the priest did nothing? Oh, man. The Levite did nothing? Okay, surely the Jew who is going to come is going to be the hero of the story. And look at verse 33. But a Samaritan. (laughs) we don't feel this and how shocking this was. This is the kind of stuff that Jesus finishes teaching and everyone's like, we have to kill this guy. Like in the black letters of our Bible, when Jesus is done teaching sometimes, it's like they decided that day that they must get rid of him. This is the kind of stuff. That got Jesus. This is not meek and mild Jesus. This is bold and wild Jesus. This is Jesus calling people out for racial issues, theological issues, socioeconomic issues, all in one story. Like he's just, he's not pulling any punches. This is all the shots because a Samaritan had centuries long tension with the Jews. This goes way back to the Assyrian Empire. This is 700 years in the making of racial and theological tension. Now, save you a lot of the information, but Samaritans were mixed race between Assyrian and Jew. They were half Jewish, ethnically. And they were deemed heretics because they had all sorts of weird little kind of theological things that ultimately they syncretized with the Assyrians. So they kind of watered down, tried to keep Yahweh, tried to keep kind of like the old covenant thing. Like, well, yeah, we're Jewish, but they kind of just sprinkled all sorts of nonsense and liberal things on top to make it really progressive for their day. Sound familiar? So they were half Jewish, they were half Assyrian. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as both heretics and half-breeds, inferior in social, religious, and racial categories. And Samaritans saw Jews as racist, as hateful, as cruel, because they were. And there was terrorist attacks and wars. and I mean, you're talking a history that we don't understand. The African-American experience and the transatlantic slave trade doesn't touch this. The kind of tension that would have existed. 700 years of this tension of wars, of hate, of cruelty, of injustice between these two people groups. But the story isn't just about that. If you remember when Jesus goes to the woman at the well in John 4, do you remember what she says about Samaritans? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. There's another passage where Jesus teaches something really offensive, and all the Jewish teachers, after he's done, says, you're a Samaritan and a demon-possessed man. Like, that's a, it's, a, it's an insult. It's a pejorative, it's a curse word to say that a Jew is a Samaritan. They're on the level as a demon-possessed person. It's like, you are Satan and also a Samaritan, right? Like, very, very tense. Like, we can't really understand the depth of the hate that existed here. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero to the half-dead Jew on the side of the road. I thought of all sorts of things in a biracial family. I, You know, like obviously we deal with race and have fun with our mixed-race kids and all sorts of reasons. And we just love it. I tried to think of like analogies that could pull this out and I just couldn't. I couldn't. It's like, okay, you know, KKK, lead head dragon. Beaten on the side of the road and Black Panther helping It's like, oh, not quite, right? Like, like I tried to like get at this for us And they just can't So I just, gotta, I just gotta let it hang there On how radical this is And that Jesus is calling out racism He's calling out social hierarchyism, He's calling out religious fundamentalism All in one breath It's crazy And we've, we've filed that off of this story And made it, now go and be nice <laughs> This is not nice there's nothing about this story that's nice. This is, this is radical, radical stuff. And he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And the Samaritan is the one that goes out of his way because the priest and the Levite don't to go and actually care for the half-dead Jewish man on the side of the road who was just making his journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. And watch what he does. But when a Samaritan... Came as he journeyed there, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Okay, underline those things. He saw him, and he had compassion. Saw him, and he felt something. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. He took care of him. And the next day, after staying with him overnight, the next day, he took out two the denari- denarius is uh, a day's wage. Basically two days worth of your paycheck, which would take care of him for about two weeks in that inn, okay. So he paid his way, and then he opened up a tab with the innkeeper and said, anything else that he needs, put it on my tab, I'll take care of it. I'll pay you when I get back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the man responded and he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, do likewise. This lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He couldn't even say it was the Samaritan who showed mercy. He said, oh, that guy, the one at the end there that you shared. The hate was so deep. The disgust was so real. He literally couldn't say the word Samaritan. And he asks, who proved to be a good neighbor? Notice where the lawyer started. He asked what he could do. And Jesus says, no, no, but, but it's about being. It's not just about doing. You can do all the right things and not be changed in who you are. And Jesus is getting at something much deeper. And he counters the question, who is my neighbor, with whose neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor am I? And Jesus answers him and gives him an impossible task. I love that when Jesus is like, go and do that. And you're like, I can't do that. You're like, bingo. That's literally what Jesus is saying here. He gives him an impossible task. Because remember, the lawyer is trying to justify himself. And his point is, you can't. No one can. You can't. I can't. We can do a lot of things. But ultimately, all of our doing won't guarantee the change of our being and the law exists to show us that we can't keep it. And right here in this moment I think that Jesus is nodding to Matthew 9:36 and it says this, very simply and these are simple words but profoundly profoundly deep about who Jesus is. Matthew 9:36 says when Jesus saw the crowds he had what? compassion. Because he saw sheep without a shepherd because they're lost, they're broken. They were harassed and they were helpless, he says. There's something about this because church, we need to understand that as we go out by our way, we go from our Jerusalems to our Jerichos and our Jerichos back to our Jerusalems and we go on our way throughout our life weekly that we claim to know the God who sees, who feels, who acts. That that we claim to know the God that, that actually loves people despite them that comes near to the wounded and the broken and the half dead. And even more than that, the fully dead. Ephesians 2, that that we were dead in our trespasses, not even half dead. Not half dead and wounded on the side of the road, but fully dead. Because there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of the grave and impress God so that he will forgive us and give us life. Romans 5, 8, that this is a God who demonstrates his love, that he acts upon his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. A God, like in 1 John four ten, that this is love. Not that God had us love him first so that he would love us back, but that God loved us by sending his son to pay the ransom price for us. And Jesus is taking all of this and putting it right in a nice little packet with a bow on it to say, this God is here. This God sees This God knows, this God draws near, this God doesn't pass by us, but that he sees us, he feels what we feel. He acts upon his love for us and comes to us and cleans us up and takes care of us and and writes blank checks for us so that we can go and flourish. Nothing short of the gospel in this. And it breaks down every single barrier that we see, that we would put up, that society would put up, that ethnicities would put up, That socioeconomic barriers would put up, that different neighborhoods and geographical areas would put up, that oceans would put up, that there is no barriers to this. Because this is the God who sees. It's the God who feels. It's the God who acts. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, go and do likewise. Notice he doesn't say go and do all of that, because he knows that's impossible, right? He knows that going out and being a perfect neighbor and loving all of our neighbors, that's not a possible task, but I just want to draw our attention as we think about this for ourselves to some uh, three things that the Samaritan does in the text that the priest and the Levite don't. First, the Samaritan, he sees. He sees the need. The priest and the Levite, they look away. They look the other way. They don't see it. Actually, they see it, they just pretend they don't. So they see it, because it does say that they saw the man and they chose to look away. Second thing, that the Samaritan feels something. You notice that? He saw the man and he what? He felt compassion. The priest and the Levite felt nothing. Felt nothing except for self preservation. Felt nothing except for I, I uh oh, uh oh. I better I better get into my protective project of self preservation. And third, the Samaritan did something, the priest and Levite did nothing. Brothers and sisters, I think today we're fed a long list of reasons of why we should just keep walking by. Why we should just keep walking by real people with real needs. And over this past year, especially with COVID, kind of magnifying some things in our hearts and magnifying some things in our culture, I've heard so many reasons given by Christians as to why we should not engage in caring for this type of person or that type of person or this cause. Or speaking to this issue. How many of us are more comfortable coming up with reasons for us to walk by hurting, needy, lost, broken people, than actually seeing, feeling, and doing something? And I know COVID makes this more complicated, right? Because it's like, well, we're really restricted in what we can even do right now. Amen, I'm with you. And that's why this sermon is not gonna be like, a, here's 11 things that you can go and do now, because I don't really frankly know what we can do. And I don't know what God's calling you to do, but I do know that our, the natural default disposition of our heart is to walk by, to feel nothing, to protect our heart from feeling something, to not be compassionate, and to ultimately not act. So my question to us would be, how aware are you of the needs around you? How even aware are you? Do you see anything? Do you feel anything? Do you act on on anything? Or is it always just someone else? It's like, well, someone else will do that. Like, like, oh, our church collectively will do that. But I don't. I'm not doing anything. It's like, well, that charity will take care of it. The government will take care of it. There's so many reasons. Honestly, culturally, we're fed so many reasons as to why we can just see nothing, feel nothing, and do do nothing. And I love that the Samaritan, when he sees the man, he doesn't ask certain questions that we ask. He didn't stop over the, the half-dead man and go, what did he do to deserve this? What events precipitated this? I'm gonna wait. I'm going to wait for the facts. I'm going to wait for more footage to determine whether I should even act like a decent human being. What in his past warranted this behavior? Maybe this was payback for something he did because he was a bad guy. He doesn't ask those questions because he sees them. He sees them. Like, like he feels and he acts because he's not coming up with reasons why he shouldn't feel. He's not coming up with reasons why he shouldn't act. Because, because it's compassion. Like he's moved by compassion. Those questions don't matter when someone's in need. And the priest and Levite have all the reasons in the world including using scripture to justify why they can see nothing, feel nothing, and do nothing. Church, we will never feel something and act on something that we don't see. And today we're conditioned, honestly. I'm really tired of this, but like we're so conditioned as passive observers of the world around us. We live our life behind browsers. We scroll past stuff all the time. We stay an arm's length away from needs behind screens and devices. And we just scroll, and we protect ourselves and we aim for self-preservation, because self-enhancement and self-actualization is really, when we get to the root of it, the good news that we believe in our heart, and we think that that is going to save. And we end up detached, and we end up unaffected, and we end up disinterested, and we end up apathetic to the real needs around us. And we live day by day walking by. We live day by day with a posture of disinterest. We we live day by day with a meh. When is the next Mandalorian episode coming out? I love the Mandalorian. But self-preservation and me time can make a heart apathetic really quick. And that's what Jesus is getting at. The disinterest and the apathy that starts in our heart as human beings. And it's there. It's in all of us. Ephesians four calls it hard heartedness, right? That word in Greek is a calloused heart. It's marble. Like so, we finally got countertops in our house. We used to we had plywood. We were like very like hardwood chic. We called it. We finally got like, and these countertops are hard. Like they're hard. And I was sitting there this morning, really early, way too early, before I am a Christian, right? Like while I am drinking coffee, sitting with this cold hard countertop, and I was like, and the Lord was like, that's your heart. I am like, whoa, that sucks. Like that's that that's your heart, apart from me. Like, like like you encountering me, knowing that I see and I feel and I act, and me putting that in you, that's your heart. callous, marble, hard, dead to feeling, desensitized. Your heart's just scar tissue. You can feel nothing. So you're, you and I are left just not feeling. Like we're not feeling... We're not feeling for God. We're not feeling compassion for others. We're not feeling a conviction to grow and and do something. We're not feeling brokenness. We're not feeling injustice. We're we're just not feeling because we're browsing, because we're arm's length away from these things. Things like one billion people with no drinking water on the planet, on planet Earth. We just just don't feel it. Three billion people living on less than $2.50 a day. The 600,000 children in foster care or in orphanages worldwide. The fact that Americans spend enough money on cosmetics every year to provide water and sanitation to 2 billion human beings on planet Earth. And that 22,000 children die every single day from diarrhea. Like, I don't like diarrhea. You know, that's inconvenient for me. But I, I, I walk into Jean Coutu and I'm just—I oh, just fixed my diarrhea. If nothing, nothing shakes us. If nothing brings us to feel. If if, if, if nothing forces us to look and see, we, we will do nothing. And apathy, honestly, is easy because it doesn't—it doesn't inconvenience us. It doesn't require anything from us. And that's exactly what the lawyer was looking for. He's looking for self-justification. He's looking for the bare minimum that he can do to be justified. To be said, you're awesome. Look at you. You're so great. He's looking for the bare minimum that he can do. And God calls him on all of it. And he calls each of us on all of it. Because apathy ultimately shackles us to ourself. Apathy forces us to fight against anything that would call us to draw our eyes away from ourself. And we're left with indifference. We're left with self interest. We're left with self preservation. John Piper, the OG, said this watch this. Apathy is passionless living. It is sitting in front of the TV night, living your life from one moment of entertainment to the next. It is the inability to be shocked into action by the lostness and suffering of the world. Watch this. It is the emptiness that comes from thinking of godliness. As the avoidance of doing bad things instead of the aggressive pursuit of doing good things. I honestly this morning want to just get up and read that last line and just sit down and go home. So many of us like this lawyer have bought into this religious thing that we just got to avoid sin stuff. Avoid bad stuff and then we'll be good. Instead of seeing the church as a radically generous, hospitable people that is sent into the world to turn the entire world upside down. Like, 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 like a, a relentless pursuit of good things, not a passive avoidance of bad things. Man, the gospel gets at that so well. So just hear me. This parable has far less to do with being a good person and everything to do with how comfortable we are doing nothing good. That's what this does to us. And church, we can make a difference or we can make excuses, but we cannot do both. What would Montreal look like? What would our communities look like if it was saturated by people who knew the God that sees and that cares, and that feels, and moves towards needy people with compassion. Here's the good news in all of this. After we sit with the conviction of it in our heart, here's the good news. That God will, will not let his people not care. Like, he won't let us not care. Like, that, that, if you don't care, there's a disconnect. If there's nothing that shocks us into action, it's because you're not seeing God. You're not as close to God as you think you are if you feel nothing. God will never say, I don't care, so neither do you. It's just not our God, right? And thank God it's not. Like, glory be to God for Jesus Christ, the God-man, who saw the crowds and had compassion and moved towards us. Not half dead, but fully dead sinners. And I love last that Jesus simultaneously, he universalizes neighbors and specifies them at the exact same time. Because here's what's interesting. If you make loving your neighbor into a everybody, it will quickly become nobody. If you make living your life for God about later, at some point, it will become never, at no point. And what Jesus does here is he takes neighbor and he shows us that it's, it's literal neighbors. Like, like I, know, I know, it's very crazy, right? Like literally our neighbors. Like, like you know, like on your, on your street, like where you live, in your condo, right? Like those people, literally your neighbors. And it's people next to us everywhere else we are. And in the Greek, that's literally what it means. It's someone who is near you. It's anyone who is near you. But it's specific people with real faces and real names and real needs and, and, and like real brokenness and real wounds. It's, it's those ones. It's everyone next to you, where you live and how you live. Regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, their past, their present, their future decisions. None of that matters. Why? Because they're your neighbor. See that? We've withheld neighborly love as the church. And then we've shaken our fists at other groups and shaken our fists at the government and shaken our fists at charities and shaken our fists at everybody else who we think should be doing it because we're justified in doing nothing. So, church, hear me. Through history, the church has done a lot of good. It has. We have. I'm very proud of that. It's done a lot of bad. And it's because it's made up of people like you and me. But here's the thing when the church is healthy and not distracted by nonsense, It has always been marked by this kind of radical generosity and hospitality to small, unseen acts of loving our neighbor. In Acts 17, 6, it says that the church had turned the world upside down. If you remember the beginning of Acts, it says that there was not a needy person among them, among the church. Not a needy person among the church. Like, Like anyone that the church touched, like anywhere the church was, there was not a needy person left. Talk about radical generosity. So, I'm out of time, but listen. God gives us all that we have so that we can actually go and see and give to others so that they can have all that they need. He does not just give us what we have so that we can enjoy what we have. He gives us all that we have so that others can have all that they need. So here's what we wanna do. I just want you to give this this some thought. I want you to give this some serious prayer. I want you to see Like I want you to feel, I want you to act, I want you to ask the hard questions of how we can steward and manage everything we've been given, our time, our energy, our relationships, our neighborhood, our money, our possessions, our houses, everything. If we would just see them as spaces and things that we have been given so that other people can get all that they need. And coming out the other end of COVID, I'm telling you right now, the church is gonna have a monumental opportunity. And I think we already do, but yes, we're limited. Amen, like we're restricted right now, get that. But let's not sit passively and hope for a future version of ourselves to do the work that honestly we probably can start doing now. Let's actually look at how we can do this. Let's look at local needs and national needs and global needs. Let's, let's sponsor children with shelter them. Let's, let's volunteer on a suicide prevention hotline and combat some of the mental and emotional health issues. Let's, let's end foster care and adoption. <laughs> like the church literally could in one generation end it. Let's, let's do it, let's, let's end it, right? Like let's have our, our churches full of that. Let's, let's give to reach the Reach Canada initiative so that churches are planted across our country. Let's do small things, let's bake, let's gift. Let's, let's love people with tangible acts where we show them that we see them and that we care for them and we love them. I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't, I don't know what locally it looks like. I don't know what nationally it looks like. I don't know what globally it looks like to you. But this isn't optional, like, this is evidence of us knowing the God that we claim to know. We're, we're commanded. This isn't like a suggestion of, like, super Christians. of Like, hey, be really awesome. Only if you're awesome. Like this, this, is, this is commanded of us. Commanded of followers of Jesus. Commanded of the church. So, imagine with me, the whole island of Montreal and beyond, saturated with followers of Jesus who, who see needs, who see people, who see faces, who see and know names and feel compassion and act to love everyone where we find ourselves. Imagine Montreal being saturated with people who are parts of a community small and real enough to gather around our our dinner tables. I know, don't, I know, okay? I know we can't quite yet, okay? Okay. But imagine with me, okay, that, and then we can invite other people to the sofa and to the porch and to the dinner table to to actually love them, to actually hear them, to actually see them. Imagine every follower of Jesus intentionally living below their means so that, in order that, we can go above and beyond with generosity to other people. Everything in our culture tells us to increase our standard of living. The Bible constantly calls us to increase our standard of giving. And we don't do it. Imagine knowing our neighbors' names and knowing their stories and knowing their celebrations and their hurts and their wounds and knowing them well. Imagine our lives being on display so that the watching world actually sees christ centers examples of fatherhood and motherhood and masculinity and femininity and singleness and youth and seniors. Like, like imagine. And I don't think this is a utopian pipe dream, church. I really don't. I don't think this is a pipe dream at all. I think it's what we're commanded to be. To actually love our neighbor, whoever they are, wherever they are, and however we can. And that is what the Good Samaritan is about. <laughs> and just hear me, this is not a, a guilt sermon. It's not like a walking out with, with like heaviness on our shoulders, like we gotta go and do this now because our God is already doing it. And that's why we get to do it. We get to just go work with, go to work with our good, good father. We get to go out because his grace is sufficient. We get to go and actually just, like he's already at work in our neighborhoods. He's already at work in people's hearts and we just gotta show up. Half of the work is done if we just show up. Let me pray for us. Father, you're not distant and you're not absent. You've shown up. You, you put flesh on. You showed up and and you made good on your word. And you came to us. And Lord, guilt and condemnation and shame are never motivators for love. But love is. We just pray that Jesus, you would remind us of the radical love that is available to us in the gospel. That we don't work for anything that we have we work from your love and everything that you've given us. I pray for us as a church, especially in this strangeness, especially in a world of restrictions and a world of limitations that you would continue to open up ways for us to actually move out and love our neighbors well. And you give us the ability to see. Give us the ability to feel. Give us the ability to act in ways that ultimately points to your radical generosity and compassion for people who, who don't know you, who don't know you or don't wanna know you. And that we as a church would take that responsibility seriously and that our neighborhoods and our city would not be the same as a result. We love you, we do need you. And we're so thankful that we don't work for your love, but that we work from it. We give ourselves to you Ask that you go before us.